Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Perry Link about his new book, An Anatomy of Chinese, Rhythm, Metaphor, Politics, that was published with the Harvard University Press in 2013. This is a bold book. It's an ambitious book, and it's an extraordinarily thoughtful book. It's a book that uses a very widely transdisciplinary array of sources, but not a superficial, uh, you know, kind of journey across uh, a wide range of sources that happen to be convenient. No, this is a very deep, decades-long engagement with a wide range of sources from uh, fields like the philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, cognitive science, prosody, um, poetic form, linguistics, and many, many others, to look at something that we might call, and that um, Link refers to as an anatomy or a plumbing of the structures of Chinese language, but also to do something um, that's equally as bold and, and just as enlightening in the course of this book, and that is to take examples from a lifetime of experience with spoken and written Chinese in all kinds of registers from poems and folk songs to text messages and, and online materials to inform problems and conceptual issues that come out of non-Chinese language, philosophy of language and philosophy of metaphor, conceptual ways of thinking about the mind and language and how they might be related, and to create an encounter or a dialogue among these different fields in ways that I think are, is very inspiring um, and very provocative. So over the course of our conversation, we talked about some of the major points that come up in these three main chapters of the book, rhythm, metaphor, politics, and touch on um, just a, a tiny sample of the many, many, many very rich examples from all kinds of registers of official and unofficial Chinese, of spoken Chinese, texted Chinese, written Chinese, that Link brings to bear in what's a, a a really wide, extraordinarily wide, I'm using the word extraordinary a lot because you, you can tell um, I'm very impressed with the book, but an extraordinarily wide, I'll say it again, archive of uh, sources that collectively make up a way of looking at and looking into and looking with the Chinese language that's really enlightening. It's also a refreshingly clearly written and, and at points very humorously written book that is both very accessible if you know no Chinese. So the reader who knows absolutely no Chinese will actually learn a lot about the Chinese language from this book and perhaps start an encounter with the Chinese language that you might not have thought possible before. But also specialists who work with Chinese language texts or work with the Chinese language in some other way will find a, a ton of examples um, and prose that brings out uh, what or aspects of the language you may not even have ever thought about or, or realized were important to the way you speak the language and you hear the language. I certainly speak and hear Chinese differently after reading the book than I did before. It was a really great time talking with Perry about it. It's a great book, and I hope you enjoy both the interview and also reading the book. We're here today to talk with Perry Link about his new book, An Anatomy of Chinese, Rhythm, Metaphor, Politics. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Perry, and thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to talk with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is the first interview I've had on this book, and I'm really happy to do it. Oh, great. Well, could you start us off, as is typical for um, our channel, by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to the study of modern Chinese literature? Oh, that's a long story. I started taking Chinese in uh, college just as a side interest and in grad school switched to Chinese studies. I got hooked after living in Hong Kong for a year. Um, <clears throat> the story of how this book started is fairly interesting, though. It, it sort of gave birth to itself. Uh, in my study of Chinese history and literature and living in China, I noticed uh, interesting things about 
metaphors and rhythms and uh, political things, and, uh, and I took notes. And, and I started with a file. I had three or four files, and I just would scribble something down and toss it into a file, and, and these files got fatter. And then eventually I thought, gee, I should try to make this into a book. And I didn't really even know that it would be in three big chapters when I started, but it it sort of came down that way. So in a sense, I've been working on this book for 30 years, although the conscious project of making it into a book is just about four or five years old. Now, the book that we're talking about looks specifically, as you've mentioned um, already a little bit, at three features of human language in general and of Chinese language in particular. And those are rhythm, metaphor, and politics. And those make up three long chapters that we'll talk about in the course of our conversation. Now, you mentioned at the end of the book, but I think it's useful to just um, bring up for listeners right at the beginning here, especially those um, who may not have had a chance to read the book, that you... you isolated these or you noticed these three features in part um, and thought they were important, or at least as, as I read them in the book, um, because for, for many reasons, probably, but in particular, they often go unnoticed and they affect meaning. And what those right. two things mean and how those come out in various ways over the course of the book, we'll, we'll definitely talk about. Now, right. um, you, you talked a little bit about how you came to this. This was, you mentioned, you know, that this involved three decades or more of files at the beginning of the book. One of the other things that's really wonderful about the book and that's very, very noticeable right from the beginning and through all of the chapters is how interdisciplinary it is. So this is based on not just your your notes on the Chinese language, your experience as a scholar of, of China and as somebody who's lived and worked in and with China, but as somebody who's done really wide reading in cognitive science, philosophy of mind, studies of prosody, music theory, politics, philosophy of language, and on and on. And I could go on and on about this. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the project and, and some of the particular challenges or opportunities that that uh, raised for you in the course of doing work for the book? Uh, I'm of a generation, I'm 68 years old now, that was trained in interdisciplinary studies. In the China field, it was called area studies, and well, in other fields too. In the 70s, it was a high time for that. Uh, The theory of which uh, I'm a very strong partisan of when you look at something in the world, it can be global warming. It can be uh, any number of topics that uh, have many aspects to them. China is a good example. You can't understand China if you don't know language and if you don't know history and I mean economics, <laughs> we needn't speak of politics, obviously, art, art history, archaeology. Uh, to get into China well, uh, one, I think, has to be interdisciplinary. And it's uh, painful for me and others in my generation to watch how the disciplines in recent decades have become uh, hegemonic here, taken over, and people, young scholars, are trained to be only a political scientist, only an archaeologist or something. I think that's not the way to understand China. So part of me is a zealot in this regard. I want to do this. Uh, and part of me uh, in this book was just mm, thinking, okay, this is what I believe and I'm going to have to go do it. So uh, I didn't know much about music theory and prosody when I started this project, but when I got interested in rhythms, I read Feng Shengli, who's written about this, and Duan Mu San, who's written about this, and I do my best to grasp those fields, and uh, of course, that's skating on thin ice in a bit, and then when I go to metaphor theory, and I read Lakoff and Johnson and John Searle and so on, that's going in a newer direction for me, too. Uh, so, as you mentioned, there are eight or seven, seven or eight Part directions in the book that go this way, uh, and the I guess the downside of is of it is that I I do tread in areas that I don't thoroughly know. But the upside is that I can pull things together. These things relate. They all have to do with China. They all have to do with how people communicate and what meanings are and so on. Um, so. Uh, 
I do it as a matter of practice and as a matter of fundamental belief. And that's actually one of the really wonderful things about the book is that it's not just interdisciplinary, but it also brings together. And and this is part of, I think, not just the craft of the book, but interestingly related to one of the major arguments of the book that we'll get to. These English language and Anglophone um, literature from a number of different theoretical disciplines, but also a great deal of Chinese language sources that speak to and perhaps haven't in in a substantial way been yet put into a relationship with these other kinds of sources in ways that generates a kind of dialogue that we don't often see in a single book, let alone in the field of Asian studies. And that's very inspiring. And I think it's something that will come out over the course of our conversation about the individual chapters. So let's get into those chapters. There's an introduction to the book that lays out um, the general framework of the three chapters to come and that lays out some of the major arguments that we'll look at. And then we get into the first chapter, and this is the chapter on rhythm. Chapter one looks at the features, some of the features, many features of the prosody or rhythm of the Chinese language and contextualizes these issues within examples and discussions of rhythm in English. So this becomes a discussion not just of rhythm in the Chinese language, language, but rhythm and language more generally. That is both informed by and also speaks to a number of different related fields. You're very clear in this chapter, and I want to lay this out for listeners as well, that you're not trying in this book and in this chapter in particular to find rules that absolutely hold in all places and all times. You're not seeking to you know, say the, have the last word on rules that have no exceptions, both with respect to Chinese language but also language more generally, but instead you're interested in locating patterns, and that becomes a theme throughout the book. So one of the things that comes up um, in very early on in the book that I want to ask you to speak a little bit to is a relationship with some authors or some works that seem particularly inspiring to you or seem from the perspective of, of one reader, of myself, to have inspired the way you think about some of these issues. In the first chapter, you talk about uh, the work of Chinese linguist Y.R. Chow um, in, in great detail, and, and uh, this linguist comes up over and over again as a touchstone. Can you talk a little bit about this linguist and your, your particular inspiration from their work? Uh, Zhao Yanran uh, was a May 4th intellectual and a probably 20th century China's most brilliant linguist. He helped to invent the Guoyu Romazu romanization system. He uh, trained U.S. Uh, soldiers during World War II in Chinese to go aid the war in the China theater and therefore wrote a book called the Cantonese Primer that a year later he did a Mandarin version of the Mandarin Primer, which is the textbook that I learned on. And my teacher was his daughter, Zhao Rulan, who's still living in Cambridge, Mass. Uh, these days. I gave her a copy of the book the other day. Um, he, he's um, a brilliant linguist, but also um, a whimsical man. His book is filled with very enlightening but funny examples as well. And that was inspiring to me. I try in this book to make the examples to the point, but also whimsical because it just makes the book more fun to read. Another thing I've always admired about Zhao is that he avoids jargon. And this is another thing that I try to do in the book as I read in these other fields. Wherever one reads across disciplines these days, one runs into bristles of jargon. But I try, and so does Zhao in his writing, to minimize it. That is, to use a technical term only when you absolutely have to, and then you define it clearly so that ordinary people who are intelligent can read the book. Great. Now, the chapter itself goes on to develop an argument sequentially through various subsections that each develop, um, in turn, some aspect of an argument about not just rhythm in Chinese, but a way of speaking to a larger question that motivates this chapter. Are there certain rhythms that are common to 
human life, human language, and in what ways might looking at the example of the Chinese language both inform how we think about Chinese and also how we think about not just how we might answer this larger question, but really what it means to even ask the question and to use the question itself to open up different ways of thinking about language, human life, and culture. So, yeah, well. Uh, <laughs> A couple of things about rhythm grabbed my attention and, as you note, formed the chapter. One is that uh, rhythms pop up in English and in Chinese, and although one can't assume that they're borrowed, they're the same. Uh, for example, in U.S. telephone numbers, we normally go ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, three-three-four. Uh, and we can only remember our own phone numbers in those rhythms. Try saying your phone number in a different rhythm, you can't do it. You have to write it down and read it off. So there's something um, meaningful and important to memory about that rhythm. Well, I noticed in Beijing when I lived there in 1988, riding the buses down the road from Yoi Binguan, where I lived, that the ticket sellers would call out, <laughs> the very same rhythm as the phone numbers in English. And this made me think, my goodness, that's a standard rhythm. Uh, is there something about the human mind that accommodates that rhythm more easily than others? Uh, so a lot of this chapter has to do with uh, whether rhythms are universal, they tend to be in a certain way in the human mind, or in what ways they are cultural. And I come down pretty hard that a lot of them are cultural. The five um, syllable patterns, ta-ta, ta-ta-ta, are very common in Chinese, as are the seven, of course, ta-ta, ta-ta, ta-ta-ta, uh, and not in English. Um, I further noticed that rhythms, although mm, we don't think of them as carrying meaning the way a word does, uh, they do tend to communicate something. Uh, I'll give an example in English that your listeners can probably recognize. In English, if we've had a bad day and it rained at the mall, we might say, well, first it rained, and then I couldn't find my car keys, and then uh, my son called and had an accident. And so you've got this rhythm that involves rhythm and pitch, to be sure. There are other things involved, but it's ta-ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta-ta. And that although we don't think of it as meaning something, tells the listener a number of things. One is, I'm making a list. Another is that this list is indefinitely long. It can keep going. And another is usually, although not always, uh, it's an irritating list. And you don't find that particular pattern in Chinese, but you find a lot of others in Chinese that tend to mean something. Uh, I noticed again, crossing that same road outside the Yoi Binguan, that there's a sign at the beginning of the crosswalk that says, Ikan Erman San Tongguo, which is qi and rhythm. It's seven-syllable rhythm, ta-ta, ta-ta, ta-ta-ta, which ancient roots in China in elite poetry as well as popular culture. But then I thought, my goodness, if a road sign, a street crossing sign in New York City were in a rhythm, New Yorkers would think you're nuts. I mean, we just don't do that. I mean, and then I imagined riding the train into New York from Princeton. Uh, if the ticket seller came along and said, next stop is New Brunswick, get your ticks quick, the way that ticket seller in Beijing did, again, people would freak out. They'd probably leave the train. So there are certainly different cultural ways that uh, rhythms are used, and, and they don't all mean the same, although the question of where they are in common because of the structure of the human brain is also there. So I work on that question um, and ask also whether they, yeah, where am I here? That You go ahead. No, one of the really interesting things about this chapter, I think as you've alluded to, is that you're not just rooting this in um, uh, looking at 
poetry, folk songs, but also some of the sources that come up in this chapter for uh, that form part of your archive include graf- the graffiti, advertisements, menus, te- text messages, um, in a really interesting way of thinking about a linguistic archive. Now, right. um, here- I do, excuse me, I, I do make the argument, this is, I think, important, that um, although rhythms are there in English and in Chinese, uh, they're more common in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I try to speculate on why that might be. And I think it has to do with the uh, easy fungibility of Chinese syllables. That is, it's easier in Chinese to make something into exactly seven syllables that are then available to that seven-syllable rhythm than it is in English. Uh, elite poetry, you know, iambic pentameter, and so on in in English does have a beat pattern, but very seldom does that correlate with exactly the same number of syllables. It's just much harder to do that syllable by syllable balance in an inflected language like the Indo-European languages than it is in Chinese. So I have that that theory for why rhythms are more common. And I think, although I haven't tried to test this rigorously empirically, I think it's overwhelmingly obvious that there are more rhythms in daily life Chinese uh, than in English. Now, speaking about uh, testing rigorously and testing empirically, one of the really interesting methodological things that you're doing in the book, both in this chapter and in the later chapters, is to uh, is to do a series of experiments or do occasional experiments using a particular archive that you've delineated to test a hypothesis about the way language works, um, and it, specifically in Chinese. So, mm. one of the case studies that you often go to, and this. This is certainly the case in this chapter, but it also comes up as being a significant archive for you in later chapters, is the speech and writings of Mao Zedong. This seems like this serves um, as an important archive for you. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and about um, what you find uh, important about those particular texts as a space to experiment with ways of thinking about the possibilities of uh, prosody and rhythm in Chinese? I got interested in the examples of Mao's slogans because it was a good example of where rhythms carry meaning, even though the speaker and the listener are not aware, most likely, in fact, overwhelmingly not likely, that they notice that they're conveying a meaning. Uh, because Mao Zedong told the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution to knock down the four olds, old customs, old habits, old culture, old this, old that. Well, certainly these traditional rhythms would count as old habits and old customs, no question about it. And yet, when the Red Guards went to Tiananmen to praise German Mao, they said, which is which is one of the four old patterns. Therefore, it became interesting. Did they realize they were using one of the four olds in order to praise the man who was advising them to smash the four olds? Probably not. Did Mao, hearing it, realize that? Also, I would guess probably not. Yet both of the listener and the speaker here are aware that something is conveyed by the use of that uh, rhythm. 我们要见毛主席 sounds more exalted. Mao is more godlike when it's said that way than if the red guards had come to Tiananmen and said, same meaning, but without the elevation, the austerity that the rhythm provides. And then I began to notice that, especially in Mao language during the Cultural Revolution, there's a lot of Uyen patterns and Qian patterns. The famous Yang Ban Xi, the model operas, uh, titles have these. Hong Se Niang Zi Jun, Zhi Wei Hu Shan, and then slogans like Nong Ye Xue Da Zhai. Right, and Gong Ye Xue Da Qing are also that. Um, even Mao Zedong, when he comments at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution that uh, you know the professors at Beida are causing problems, he says, "Beida shui qian wang ba duo," clever little thing, but said in Qian. So 
These were dramatic examples to me of the principle that rhythms, A, do have meanings, or not meanings quite, but certainly convey something, and B, the users of the rhythms aren't aware that they're conveying, conveying meanings to the rhythms in the same explicit sense that we're aware when we use words. And you talk a lot in this chapter about this um, this issue of awareness of the user. And you look specifically at this issue in your contrast of dominant versus recessive rhythms in a way that's really important. One of the... Um, I mean, one of the interesting questions that comes up uh, for me, actually there are two questions relating to what you just said. First, um, why is it so important to look at the awareness of rhythms by a speaker? Why does that matter, um, whether or not a speaker is aware of rhythms in terms of the kind of argument that you're trying to make in the book? It's uh, because it's paradoxical to think of a meaning being conveyed that the speaker and listener are unaware of. Normally, what we mean by mean is that, you know, I mean to do this. If I step on your toe and you say, ouch, I say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Mean means that I purposely did it. I awarely did it. And if I didn't mean to, I wasn't aware. So normally, meaning is aware. And here we have examples of meanings that are conveyed that the, we're not aware of. And it's not just the rhythms. I argue that the metaphor, uh, the conceptual metaphors in my middle chapter are also used and convey meaning without the speaker and listener being aware of it. And for the politics section at the end, too, there I think the awareness creeps in a little more. But once it gets established, the political connotations of certain phrases get passed back and forth without people noticing, hey, I'm saying something political now. <laughs> That's why I call the book, by the way, Anatomy, because I think our innards, our liver and our pancreas, are parallel in that sense. They do things for us, right? If we didn't have a pancreas, we wouldn't live. But how many of us understand what our pancreas does? We don't. It 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 works without us being aware of its working in a, I thought, an interestingly parallel way that this rhythm metaphor and politics does. That's right. And I think it also comes out really strikingly at the end of the book that this is also a justification for why we ought to pay attention to these issues, becoming aware of our own anatomy, for example, to, to use the metaphor as we move into the section on metaphor. Um, so it's kind of appropriate. But becoming aware of that anatomy allows us to have some awareness of what's happening to our bodies and perhaps live um, it more deliberately in a way that wouldn't wouldn't be possible otherwise. And I think you're, you're doing the same thing for language in this book in a way that's really, um, really enlightening. Well, I hope so. That, that, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so the rest of this chapter, um, just to lay this out for listeners, but I won't ask you to talk too much about this because so that we can move to metaphor. But the rest of this chapter on meaning um, explores the rest of these questions, looks at um, how meaning can be construed as use, for example. And this is something that um, comes, at least in part, it seems like, uh, from a, a reading of ordinary language philosophy like Wittgenstein and John Austin. And it also looks looks at the other factors um, in addition to rhythm that contribute to this idea of the meaning of language, including tone, including um, vowels and consonants. And there's this wonderful mm -hmm. experiment that you described that you did with school children in 1996 to see if the sounds of words uh, might have larger meanings. Right. Mm -hmm. um, pitch and parallelism, um, etc. So there's a really rich discussion of um, not just how rhythm contributes to and creates meaning, but also what we mean by meaning um, in that chapter that I think is really enlightening, both for somebody who's interested in understanding Chinese and for those um, readers and listeners who might be interested in exploring these issues of language more broadly. So this brings us into the second chapter, and this is the chapter on metaphor. One of the motivating questions for this chapter, as you lay out, is do different languages have different structuring metaphors that reflect or at least partly reflect different worldviews? Now, you lay out this question at the beginning, and then you, you, know, you, know, you, you challenge even the, the nature of that question by the end and help us see um, how to approach and encounter that question um, toward the end of the chapter. But, but we'll get there in turn. One of the 
uh, sources that you mentioned or one of the books that you mentioned early in the book and certainly in, in this chapter as being really influential for you um, is the, the very famous book Metaphors We Live By by Lakoff and Johnson. Can you talk a little bit about your encounter with that book and how that shaped the way you think about this? Yes, I ran across that book in the early 90s. I think it was published in 1980. Uh, but I was really smitten by it. <clears throat> it's not a very long book and uh, it's, uh, has good examples in it, but it has a variety of sorts of chapters, uh, and it has some mistakes where they claim too much for their theory because their, what their claims say are probably universal to languages. Uh, Chinese, voila, I read these and thought, nope, that doesn't quite fit Chinese. But the, it, it was really a bolt from the blue for me. I loved that book and it was my inspiration for digging into this topic. Uh, Lakoff in particular has written a number of other books to follow up. The most famous one is that women fire and other dangerous things. And so I read him. I read uh, John Searle, who's his colleague at Berkeley, but Searle's in philosophy. And the two of them, intellectually anyway, aren't quite on the same wavelength. I admire the heck out of Searle. He is just so smart and so clear. Uh, so I read him on metaphor. And then there's a whole field here. I have a colleague at Princeton named Sam Glucksberg who invited me to his office for coffee. And he introduced me to the field as well. So I read there. And I guess the conceptual metaphor field is the best example in the book of a subfield that was new to me that I really dove into and read quite a lot in in order to uh, write this long chapter in the book. Um, in a nutshell, the, the notion that um, Lakoff and Johnson provide and that turned me on is that metaphors in ordinary daily language, and this is different from what we in the artistic world mean by creative metaphors in poets and so on. That's a wonderful field on its own, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's the way ordinary language conceives the world metaphorically, and it becomes so accustomed that it gets entrenched in the minds of uh, the speakers of the language so that it has its own momentum. Uh, let me make this concrete, but probably more uh, easy to grasp. Uh, Lakoff and Johnson point out that in Indo-European languages, in English, which is their database, um, Consciousness is up and unconsciousness is down, so that we wake up and we fall asleep uh, and we sink into a coma and so on. And once that gets established, they argue that it tends to control the way we see the world uh, when we run into new experience. So that when Freud comes along with his you know, alternate consciousness, it becomes a subconsciousness because it's down from regular consciousness. And even when we, when computers came along and they suddenly blinked off, it's as if they lost consciousness and we say, oh, the computer's down. Okay. So I think they're right that the um, these conceptual metaphors take on their own life and not only reflect the way we think, but structure the way we think. But then I started to think, and this was my inspiration in reading this book, where is Chinese the same as English and where does it differ? And it raises the same question of what might be common to the human mind and what might be culturally different. Uh, in Chinese, for subconscious, we, of course, say xia yi shi. But that doesn't answer it because that's a borrowing. That's a borrowing from the Western usage. If you go back to pre-borrowing Chinese and you think of uh, Zhuangzi and his butterfly story, there it's not clear that we're going up or down when we go in or out of consciousness. And indeed, in pre-Western-influenced Chinese, which is still modern Chinese today, we don't say we say we wake across and we faint across. We So that when you pass out of consciousness or come into it, you're not going up or down. You're crossing over an imaginary line that uh, is on the same plane. <laughs> and to me, <clears throat> it seemed that the drawing to butterfly story is more genuinely puzzling in a sense. 
if you think of it as crossing a line on the same plane, then if you're going up or down, you don't have to agree with me about that or not. But anyway, there's an example of where the structuring metaphors of Chinese and English are different. Yet there were other categories of structuring metaphors where I was astounded to find that the English and Chinese languages, before any borrowings came along, coincide. Uh, I guess for me, the most dramatic example of this is the space for time metaphor. We say in English, a long time. Uh, and in many languages, we say that. And in Chinese, han chang de shi jian. But we also say, um, when we look forward to something in English, the future is in front of us. Uh, and yet, the past is sometimes before us. We say our forefathers. We can even say in English, uh, this is of no help to the problems that lie before us. So, how would I say this? Um, uh, the, the, the wisdom of the forefathers came before us and are therefore of no help to the problems that lie before us. That's a tortured sentence, I grant you. But at least it shows you that before can mean the past or the future in English. And then I realized in Chinese that very same odd seeming contradiction holds. We kan in Chinese, look forward. But yichianderen are the people before us. Uh, well, I won't take the time now to try to untangle all of this. I do try to untangle it in chapter two of the book and be clear about it. Uh, but what I discovered is that both English and Chinese have two different time for space on a horizontal plane metaphors, one of which is we are moving toward the future. Uh, we're marching into the future in English. But another, where we're stationary and the future comes at us as a train of events and passes us so that you know, Christmas is coming. Uh, we're here and it's coming toward us. And I find that in Chinese, that same, in ancient Chinese, not just modern, those same two horizontal metaphors are there. Plus a third which is that time goes down. It's much more common in Chinese than in English. We say in, in, in Chinese, you know, 下礼拜, next week, or 下个月, next month, uh, and by for up. So the time goes from up towards down. In English, we use this very less commonly, but we say, for example, uh, hand-me-downs in a family where time implicitly is going down, or descendants from the past. Um, a scholar in Taiwan has done a study and measured that about one-third of the space-for-time metaphors in Chinese are top to bottom, whereas in English probably less than 2% are. And I actually counted pages in novels in order to compare how many of these there are and stuff. Um, but anyway, what struck me and this was really surprising, is that both the top-to-down metaphors and the two different kinds of horizontal space-for-time metaphors conceptually were quite the same. And then not from borrowing, because you can find them in ancient Chinese and ancient English. That led me to believe that certain things like this probably are natural in the human mind. And then you think of, well, Noam Chomsky makes that claim about grammar in the human mind, that it's inborn and that you've got to work around it one way or another. And Immanuel Kant says that space and time concepts are synthetic a priori categories of the pure understanding, which is a pile of jargon that means they're built into the to the human mind and any human being is going to have them. So this was fascinating to me to, to sift through. And uh, two of the subsections of this chapter explicitly address this question. I, I pick some metaphors that are pretty much the same in Chinese and English and try to examine why. And then uh, another section for ones that are pretty much different and why. And let me just intersect, insert here that another reason why 
metaphors will conceptual metaphors will be common across languages is not just the structure of the human brain, but what Lakoff and Johnson called the experiential base uh, of human life. That is, in English, um, high means more. Now, originally, you know, high wouldn't have to mean more. Those are analytically different concepts. But they postulate that the reason why, in a lot of languages, uh, higher means more is that piles pile up. <laughs> you put some pebbles on the ground and you put more pebbles on, and the more pebbles you put, the higher the pile gets. Uh, and they've got a lot of other examples of this. In English and Chinese both, for example, uh, red can mean anger. You get red-faced in English and in Chinese, shengqi in Chinese. Uh, well, they postulate that this is because uh, in anger... In any human being, the blood tends to rush to the capillaries that are near the skin, and the skin gets redder when you get angrier uh, or embarrassed. And again, in Chinese and English, we again, lian hong in Chinese and red with embarrassment in English. So they postulate, and you know, I can't prove all of this, but I think on the whole, I agree with them that. Um, there are experiential bases, bases that are common to human beings. So that reason, as well as the structure of the human brain reason, lead to uh, commonalities. And there are really, as you mentioned before, interesting parts of this chapter in which you're using, uh, again, experiments in, in a, an archive that you are creating for the purpose. So, for example, the word search of a novel by Laosha and a novel by Mark Twain to look at differences. And so you, you raise um, just a, a few examples here of ways that metaphors of eating, metaphors of um, opera or of acting in Chinese actually function quite a bit differently than they do um, in English, for example. Well, much more commonly. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a book by a man named Liu Dilin that I borrowed from to write this chapter who argues, and I think correctly, that chi in Chinese as a metaphor is much more common than eat in English. You know, chi kui suffered a loss, and when a ship is in the ocean, you ask how deep is it a chi shui shen chi. For those kinds of things in English, we would never use chi. We, we play chess in, in Chinese. Chinese and we we eat something, whereas in English we take the piece. So, um, to try to measure whether Liu Dilin's postulate, postulate that chi is much more common than eat in English, that's why I read the Laosha, I took the Laosha pages and the Mark Twain pages, and sure enough, you know, he was right, that chi is much more common in, in Chinese. Uh, acting metaphors, you know, uh, in, in Chinese, you know, and so on, are much more common. And this leads to Leo's speculation, and I largely agree with him, that performing language in public correctly becomes more like a stage performance in Chinese uh, than it does in English. Of course, in English, we, we also have our exteriors and we perform in public and stuff, but we don't as much use explicitly acting metaphors and onstage metaphors to, to express it. Now, language and performance actually is a great place to segue into the next chapter. And there's, um, so let's sort of start to move toward the politics part of this book. Although I'll mention uh, for listeners, there's a lot more in the metaphor chapter that we won't have a chance to talk about. And there are not only really wonderful discussions here of um, for example, you, you mentioned metaphors of time, but you also write about in this chapter color, up and down, north and south, um, consciousness, discussions of the self, taking um, a page or two from the work of Ted Slingerland, who's my colleague at UBC. Great. <laughs> Shout out to UBC. Um, Give him my best. <laughs> I will. <laughs> uh, but also, there's a really interesting discussion here um, that gets to one of the things that we were talking about um, at the very beginning of our conversation, not just how does the literature of language and metaphor um, inform how we think about Chinese, but how do we use, how might we use Chinese language to also inform 
inform um, broader discourses on language and philosophy and metaphor more generally. And here you have a really interesting discussion of um, the possibility that English speakers are actually drawn to believe certain things exist um, because the nouns that claim to be their labels exist. And this comes from looking carefully um, at, at and thinking about the Chinese language. Um, and so there's a really interesting space here for uh, an encounter that goes both ways. Um, and it's, it's really a real encounter rather than just um, taking theory and applying it in a new position. And to me, one of the most fun parts of the end of that second chapter is where I ask whether the uh, ontological metaphors, that's what you you just referred to when you said, thinking that something is a thing because the noun that labels it is a noun, that's a very strong habit in Indo-European languages that isn't a strong habit in Chinese. And I speculate whether things like the uh, perennial problem that we call the mind-body problem in Western philosophy might have to do with this. And I take another philosopher whom I admire immensely, uh, Colin McGinn, who has a wonderful little book called The Mysterious Flame, uh, that is his best attempt to address the mind-body problem. But I try to ask whether he finds it problematic because he asks the question in English. He has, for example, near the end of his book, uh, imagining a person in a ski lift and being afraid of the distance between where he is or she is on the lift and the ground. Uh, And then McGinn writes that it's not the fear, it's the distance between where I am and the ground is one fact, and my fear of that distance and perhaps falling it is another fact. And the mind-body problem is, how do you relate those two? But then I started to think of the very same words in the end of his chapter in Chinese, and you come up with pa or hai pa and stuff, which is much easier and more natural to think of in Chinese as a verb than as a noun. Well, pa rather than kind of question. So I can't express this clearly in just a few words here on the radio, but uh, if you look at the end of that chapter, you'll find what to me is one of the most fun and one of the most puzzling uh, results of this study. And I'm not claiming that I've solved the mind-body problem, but I am asserting that the reason why it's been so nettlesome throughout the history of Western philosophy and not nettlesome through the history of Chinese philosophy very likely has to do with the mental habits that the languages instill in the philosophers who ask the questions. Because if you ask McGinn's questions in Chinese, they just aren't as puzzling as when you ask them in English. Now, um, again, moving to politics from this um, really interesting focus on language and performance. You're showing in this uh, third chapter of the book, which is a really fascinating chapter, that there's a bifurcation between official and unofficial or daily use language in Chinese. And you note here that this is a bifurcation that actually grew much sharper from the late 1950s to the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. So effectively, these different registers function as, or these these two ways of, of speaking and writing Chinese function as different registers or different idiolects of Chinese. And you go through the different qualities um, and characteristics of the official language as you're describing it here in contrast to a more um, unofficial or daily use language. Now, some of the characteristics here are really interesting to think about more broadly, and and I'll just name some of them before asking you a little bit um, about them. Um, So you talk about the differences um, of the official language in terms of lexicon and metaphor, um, including medical metaphor, which is uh, particularly interesting to me, in terms of grammar and rhythm, mentioning, among other things, that the more politically charged a phrase becomes, the more form or rhythm seems to matter. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's also an implicit claim to moral weight um, in official language, among other things. Can you talk a little bit about um, why, how did you come to this particular set of characteristics of official language, and, and how did you develop your, uh, your archive um, for looking at official language and your ideas? Can you speak a little bit to that? 
The archive is a good example of my not planning things, but just noticing things and writing them down and putting them in a file and then later going back to see what they add up to. That list of characteristics that I think is about five or six long is a later organization of notes that I'd already taken. Uh, it wasn't something that I planned from the beginning. I first noticed this when I lived for an extended time in 7980 at the campus of Zhongshan University in Guangzhou. Uh, my wife was teaching English, and some English students came over, and they wanted to learn the English game charades. And then, okay, we're going to play charades. And they went out in the hallway in order to think of what they're going to act out, and they burst into laughter. And they came back, and they acted out class struggle. Mm-hmm. Which is a very scary phrase. I mean, this was what brought a lot of pain to a lot of people in the last decade and a half. Uh, and it was curious to me why they laughed, what's funny about this. And then it dawned on me, oh, it's because of the incongruity of the context of learning a game in English, charades at this foreign teacher's house, uh, and then this very scary phenomenon of Jieji Dojong that's in our past. And it's that gap uh, that uh, that struck me. <clears throat> and then I noticed at banquets, for example, laughter would also pop up when the incongruity of the official language and ordinary language was obvious. When you're finishing a meal, for example, and there's just two shrimp left on the dish, and somebody says, Annihilate the rest of this dish, where a very fearsome militaristic metaphor is used to finish off the uh, what's on the plate. And that, too, um, would uh, cause a laughter. Or you take that shrimp in your chopsticks and give it to your friend on the next plate, and they say, hey, don't serve yourself. And you say, no, well, wait, I mean, fool, I'm serving the people. And you, well, you laughed just now, and they laughed. The incongruity between these two registers was very obvious to me. Uh, I had a, a professor who was my friend there, and he had suffered through the Cultural Revolution. He had only a two-room tiny apartment. He had two children. And then a policy came down that we have to be better to the intellectuals. Uh, and so he went to the party secretary to ask for a bigger apartment. But he couldn't say, He couldn't say that. He went in and said, could we consider uh, implementing the party central's policy on intellectuals? So it struck me that in order to get his apartment, he had to play a language game. He had to play chess pieces on a board, in a sense, rather than just say bluntly what he thought. And this reminded me of Ludwig Wittgenstein and his concept of the language game. And I won't go into that now, but that concept of the official language being a language game that ordinary people uh, feel is very different from ordinary talk, but still have to master if they want to get through life and have to learn to handle. During the Cultural Revolution, you couldn't be neutral. You'd get attacked in the official language. You had to learn to fight back in the official language. So it was almost learning a separate kind of political language. And that distinction between the political language and ordinary language survives right to the present day. I mean, if you look back last fall at the Shribada in Beijing and all the panoply and the red banners and stuff and the language that comes out, uh, that distinction is still very clear. So I noticed all this, and then I thought, gee, I better analyze, you know, exactly what are the differences linguistically between this idiolect that's official and the ordinary one. And that's what led to that list of things like formality and metaphor and moral weight, as you correctly point out, and and the others. That's actually um, one of the really important points among many that comes out of this chapter is you're describing this as a language game but being very clear after you lay out the rules of this game and you know we've talked about this lexicon um, and metaphor grammar and rhythm moral weight goal orientation thinking of fit as a kind of truth that these are rules of a game that you don't choose to play this is a game that one had to play in order to survive as you just mentioned now you go into um 
later on in this chapter, different ways that the game was played from the side of the rulers and then from the side of the ruled. But one of the examples that you raise, um, I just wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about right before then. When you're talking about really thinking of words, well, I, I would describe it this way. If we're thinking about these rules um, that, that you're giving us, or these, these characteristics of official languages rules, what words become in this case is game pieces. And they're game pieces that aren't necessarily true or false, but they're game pieces that do a kind of work that you use and you deploy to make something happen. Mm. And you, right. you use an example here to illustrate that that was very powerful. And this is the example of um, Jiang Zemin's comments after the publication of the Tiananmen Papers, which you were involved in, um, which actually is, a, I think, a really wonderful, illuminating example for demonstrating demonstrating um, how we ought to think about or how we can think about words as having these functions rather than being equated um, with a, in a kind of true or false. Right, exactly. So would right. you talk a little bit about that example? Because it's, it's a very powerful example in this chapter. Well, it struck me very hard because it was, uh, it was talking about me in <clears throat> uh 1999-2000, my friend Andrew Nathan at Columbia invited me to co-edit this Tenenman Papers volume with him. And this involved us with uh, a lot of talk with the compiler who came over and who still doesn't want his name known, unfortunately. But uh, so I got to know him quite well. And um, after the book came out, um, he gave to Andy, who, who passed to me a report. This was a, a stenographic report by someone who was at a meeting of the Politburo of the Communist Party of China commenting on the Tiananmen Papers. And note six or seven down the list was that uh, Jiang Zemin was telling the others on the Politburo that Andrew Nathan and the others, the others means me and Orville Schell, who also wrote for the book, uh, are not real scholars. They are CIA agents uh, who are wearing the cloak of scholars in disguise. So this, you know, it, it, it posed a question in my mind because you know, I, I've never worked for the U.S. government ever, let alone the CIA. And so I had to ask myself, does the leader of the largest polity in the world really believe this? Uh, if so, that's scary because... To be that badly informed and be in such a powerful position is frightening. On the other hand, does he not believe it? And therefore, is he, as it were, lying to his colleagues? Uh, that, too, was very scary. So I didn't know what to think. And uh, I was in Princeton at the time. There were a, a lot of refugees from the Tiananmen Massacre there at the time. It was called the Princeton China Initiative. <laughs> And I asked them, I said, how should I interpret this? Which of those two explanations, A or B, is it? And uh, there was no consensus. A lot of them said A, a lot of them said B. Some, some said no, the ones around Jiang Zemin, of course, have to tell him what he think, what they, what they think he wants to hear, and therefore will tell him that you're in the CIA, even though they know better. Others said, "Oh no, no, he's so cynical. He's just uh, uh, he really doesn't believe that, but he's protecting his own case by saying that." But the most insightful comment I got from that group was from my friend Su Xiaokang, who kind of laughed at me for asking the question. He said, oh, you foreigners are still too naive. The question of whether it's true or not is not even in his mind. It's not what he's doing at that meeting. What is he doing at the meeting? He's providing to his colleagues the official tools or weapons, you might call them, to go out and deal with the world with. Here's the way to present to the world. And the question of whether it's true or not almost doesn't matter. Uh, that impressed me not only as an astute comment on that 
case, but because it resonated with other things that I'd found about the use of the official language. Uh, I remember this was another experience I had in 7980, right after the uh, Cultural Revolution when I lived in China. I heard a, an argument between two English language teachers. They were Chinese people who taught English. And they're having a big argument about some grammar point. I can't even remember what the grammar point was now. Uh, but at the end, one of them, who was a party member, and she was well-connected with the, the party leadership at the school, and everybody knew that, she suddenly turned to the other one, other one and said, I need to bite one. Why don't you bite one? A, a white expert. That's a term from the Cultural Revolution that was used during the Cultural Revolution to attack intellectuals. Here she was using it four years after the Cultural Revolution had ended, but it immediately froze the atmosphere, and it had nothing to do intellectually with the grammar point that was being discussed. It was intellectually vacuous, yet it was very powerful. And then so that's the same kind, uh, in my view, of using words as tools, as weapons, as means to get to an end, and not even asking whether they're true or false. If you had tapped that young woman on the shoulder and said, what did you mean by Baidwan? Is this person actually an expert or actually white, meaning you know, uh, crypto KMT or something? Uh, she would have blinked, I think. That's not the thing. I, I was trying to club her, that's all. <laughs> so, yeah, that different way of thinking about language um, is part of the official language game, and it informs the whole two last sections of this chapter where, as you just now pointed out, I say, how does the ruling side uh, use these tools, and how does the uh, other side, the uh, ruled side, use them in return? Because it is a language game on both sides. Both guys can play it. On the, the bottom-up side, normally uses things like satire and irony, double meanings to fight back. And there are a lot of examples of those in the end of the chapter. That's right. And there are some really interesting discussions of um, the power of vagueness as a tool, the power of code as a tool, of reading upside down um, and sort of double meanings of words. And also there's, also there's a really interesting discussion in the very last section of this chapter on sort of ways of using this to think about self-censorship, um, which is also, I think, um, very illuminating for those of us who are interested in those issues. So, Perry, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, thank you so much for making the time here. There's a ton of examples, a ton of material in the book, a ton of issues that we didn't have a chance to get to purely um, because of the limited time that we have. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? I don't think so, Carla. You've done a very careful reading of it yourself, and this is by far the most in-depth interview on virtually any topic that I've had for a long time. So it's, it's, it's a great job. Well, thank you. Well, it's, it's, um, it's a very, very rich book. So thank you um, for writing something that invites that kind of reading. So now that the book is out, and congratulations, and I hope it gets, it certainly deserves to get a very wide readership, and I'll certainly be assigning this to my students. What's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Uh, the next book length thing that I want to do is about comedians' dialogue. Xiang Xiang. I knew it was going to have to do with laughter. I, I knew yeah. it was going to have to do with humor. When I was writing my PhD dissertation, I, I took a leave from Princeton and I went to Columbia and hid for seven months in the apartment of the famous Jap Japan literature scholar Donald Keene, who kindly rented his apartment to me. And I suffered in there through the writing. I scarcely left the apartment for four days in a row sometimes, writing, writing, writing. My one diversion was to listen to tapes of these Xiangshan comedians' dialogues that I didn't quite understand. It's rapid-fire talk, and I had to listen and re-listen and re-listen in order to gradually catch on. And But I did, and the more I caught on, the more I loved it. And so later... 
I, I wrote, I've written maybe three or four pieces here and there about different aspects of it. When I went to, to Beijing in 1980, I met Ho Ba Lin, the famous performer who's now departed from us, alas. And, uh, so I thought that I would try to pull together uh, these pieces and write a comprehensive sort of short history of Xiangsheng from the middle of the Qing when our first records of it arise to today. And that's especially important, I think, for somebody to do uh, because there are four or five pretty good histories of Xiangsheng that go up to 1949 uh, by scholars in China, uh, but not after 49. And these same scholars in China have opinions about what's happened after 49. In the early 50s, there was a big movement by the government to use Xiangsheng to try to spread Putonghua and also correct political ideas. And then the ones who experimented with that got smashed during the uh, Fanyo in 1957. Then during the Cultural Revolution, there were Maoists, Xiangsheng, about making friends with Africans and so on. And uh, if you listen to the tapes, you find people laughing at the wrong times, laughing at the Africans instead of with them and so on. So there's that to study. And then after Mao died, there was an effleration of these things satirizing the whole late Maoist years. And it survives right down till now, although it's been changed a lot by technology. And it used to be performed in marketplaces with people with beggar's balls asking for coppers afterwards and stuff. And now it's uh, in audiences with microphones, and sometimes it's on TV or on the computer where the the jiao the connection between the audience and the performers is lost. So technology's changed it quite a bit, uh, and politics have changed it. But nobody's written the whole story because even though there's scholars in China who could do this, they can't for political reasons. But I can. So uh, that's my goal, to try to do that. Well, it's a fabulous project. So thank mm. you so much. Best of luck on that as well. And hopefully we'll talk again um, when that book is out, um, because I, I would love to read that as well. Thank you so much. Best of luck with your work, Perry. And thanks for taking the time to talk today. It's my pleasure, Carla. Thanks a million. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.